Welcome to the APL Next Ed Minipod, where for a few minutes each week, academic leaders share insights and perspectives on the most important issues and opportunities facing academic teams. Learn how other schools are managing and strategizing for success as your host, CEO and founder of APL Next Ed, Kathleen Gibson, gathers and connects practical seeds of knowledge and experience from her guests. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the APL Next Ed Minipod, where we spend time talking with and addressing issues that are most important to those leading in higher education academic institutions across our country. Today, we have with us a special colleague and friend and my co-chair of the ACE Women's Network, Mangala Subrahamiam. Mangala is the professor of sociology and the Butler Chair and Director of the Susan Buckley Butler Center for Leadership Excellence at Purdue University West Lafayette. In this role, she focuses on providing opportunities to enhance leadership skills and professional development for faculty. Some of the many key initiatives she has created for faculty success include the Coaching and Resource Network, which I know has been copied and emulated at many campuses across the country. She also sponsors a, an annual workshop for assistant and associate professors and a support circle to care and nurture faculty in a care network, uh, which serves as an informal and flexible support group for faculty. She has a book coming out in 2022 that she has co-edited, which is a collection of leadership experiences of women across multiple professional and professional identity categories and provides a unique lens of understanding into the work of leadership and how women of color in particular uh, navigate university spaces. Today, we're going to spend some time talking about a topic that is important to many institutions and one that uh, Mangala has shared on in uh, podcasts, in interviews, in articles in Inside Higher Education, in her upcoming manuscript, and something that she practices uh, every day in the work and priorities that she is generating in her leadership role at the Butler Center, and that is uh, a focus on uh, really moving the needle and doing work that is going to have an impact on diverse faculty, staff, and administrators uh, across higher education institutions. And so the topic we're going to cover today is how do we as institutions um, ensure that we aren't just checking a box, say perhaps by hiring a vice president of diversity, and how do we make sure instead that we're really moving the needle and doing uh, initiatives and prioritizing the work of helping uh, diverse uh, faculty, staff, and administrators at our institutions to be successful. So Mangala, welcome, first of all. And uh, secondly, uh, I'd love for you to just jump right in and talk to us a little bit about how we ensure, again, that we are making a difference and being impactful and seeing outcomes rather than just sort of checking a box. Thank you. Um, thank you, Kathy, first of all, for having me in this conversation. and. Um, I know you and I have talked about this um, actually multiple times over the past year, especially I think um, since the protests that kind of got intense after the summer of 2020 seeking racial justice. So I know that you and I um, have some similar thoughts on this and uh, I would love to share my experiences with, uh, with you about this. And thank you for putting together such a podcast series. I think it's so important in higher education 
for us to have discussions uh, on these topics, but also to know what institutions are doing and therefore what is working and what is not working, right? And I, I think that is extremely critical because oftentimes even just using the word diversity um, means different things to different people. And for us, uh, for those of us who are committed, uh, you know, uh, to bringing about diversity or ensuring diversity in institutions, I would say we think more intersectionally, right? Uh, we are not thinking only gender or only race or only ethnicity or nationality or sexual orientation or ability, but the intersections of these that shape our experiences and, and think about even uh, socioeconomic status or, you know, which we often refer to as class. I mean, think about first generation students who may be white, black, brown, right? Uh, their experiences are completely different. And, and so to think about diversity in a very broad way, right? I think it's extremely important because oftentimes we fall into these categories of oh, here are the four categories from the census or, you know, and think about the multiracial population that is growing in the US. Um, That's right. And all the more reason for us, think of all of the, the proportion of interracial marriages, if you look at uh, in the US has been growing. So much a reason for us to think a little more broadly about diversity and, and, and what that brings. And, and I'm saying this not because we should be all encompassing of everything, but also in terms of thinking of what is relevant in a particular context, right? Um, it's not that we want to suppress a group and you know put forward another group, or it's also what I often say is, it's not a zero sum game to mm -hmm. be supportive mm -hmm. of uh, women, or women of color and provide them opportunities, it's not taking away something from someone else, right? Mm -hmm. It's creating this, this, this leveling of this playing field in, in one sense. So, so that's where I would kind of uh, start with for us to think uh, more broadly, one. And I so agree with you about uh, what we are seeing in these current trends, right? About just hiring somebody, putting in a position, I've taken care of this checker box and it's done. And it's not true at all. It's very similar to um, what I write in the chapter, in my chapter in the book, in the co-edited collection that's coming out 2022 is, it's just like the statements, mm -hmm. right? Every time there's an issue of racism or there are protests and then universities put out a statement, we don't know if that will lead to action or change. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm someone who thinks always very, very certainly that change can't happen tomorrow. But mm -hmm. where, where is the starting point for, for change? So even just like the statements or hiring an individual or putting out, you know, here is our mission statement, which includes the words diversity, equity, inclusion. I think they are all just basic starting points. They definitely don't reflect or they are not addressing diversity. They are not addressing racism or sexism or ethnocentrism for that matter, right? And, and that's the difficult part. It's the next steps, right? And, and, I, and I think from what you were saying, you, you, you're, you're curious to know more in this conversation about what are these next steps beyond checking a box? I think that's exactly right. I think, um, and you're the ideal person to share these things because I think you have gotten in 
and, and sort of dug into going way beyond checking the box. And I'm curious to learn and to share with our listeners, first of all, what, uh, what has inspired you to sort of experiment and listen and do the things that may or may not work as it relates to achieving these sorts of objectives. And what are the, so what's the inspiration? Where does that come from? And then also what have been the consequences of listening and, and experimenting and providing services that go beyond sort of what you might expect or maybe typical? Inspiration. And that's a really good question, uh, considering I came into higher education and became an assistant professor, never ever thinking that I would um, be in some position where I would be addressing uh, some of these issues around diversity. I think part of the inspiration is just one, my experiences um, as an assistant and as an associate professor, just being extremely quiet and uh, observing things around me. And I often believed I was the only one who was experiencing those things until I suddenly found myself in this position. Uh, and prior to coming into this position, I had a departmental uh, kind of a partial administrative kind of position as the director of graduate studies. And when I began hearing from students of color about their experiences on campus on in the greater Lafayette area and how they feel and so on. Um, and it certainly made me think um, as a director of graduate studies, I was quite instrumental in recruiting uh, quite a few uh, students of color, uh, quite a few black students uh, into the graduate program. Uh, unfortunately, um, none of them stayed uh, as, mm -hmm. uh, as my term ended. Um, you know, the expectation that I will be the supporting person or the supporting faculty member is a lot to take on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even as an associate professor, knowing that most associate professors, even women associate professors, rarely make it to become full professors. So I think it was a lot asking a lot of me. And uh, once I completed my term, I could see the trickle out uh, of those uh, students. So it, it did make me think about the dynamics of what is happening or what are our shortcomings or what could we do differently or better. And I ask this question of myself all the time, you know, what can we do better? What can I do differently? So I, I think when I was appointed to this position, fortunately, I was like, okay, here is probably an opportunity for me to do some things um, from what I have experienced. But I think this position in its first year also gave me a chance to hear from many across this campus. Although the emphasis went on faculty, a lot of the staff are very engaged in everything that we do. So hearing from predominantly faculty and some staff, it did dawn on me that I'm probably not the only person experiencing these things. I mean, even as a woman, right? I mean, maybe I hadn't even had very conscious conversations with other women faculty um, around me. And so it really opened my eyes. Okay, this is much wider than what I thought. And then trying to be creative, right? About what I'm listening to and what do I take from that? And then what, do, what can I do to address, you know, what I'm hearing? It's not easy. Uh, I'd be honest. So the first year, I think we did a series called Conversations About Inclusion. 
it is a it was a series on, on various topics uh, ranging from teaching to campus to students to mentoring to faculty research to just explore the meaning of uh, what we mean by inclusion so a wide variety of topics and honestly i had i wasn't sure how the campus would respond i we made this announcement and uh, i recall my assistant asking me what kind, you know, what, what rooms should we book? Like, what are you expecting? What's the size? And we were already way into the summer towards coming close to fall. Rooms had been reserved. And so I said, um, based on what you had in the past, maybe a little more than that. So 30, 35. Um, so she came back and told me there were no rooms of that size. That we uh, all are gone. They're reserved. Um, so we should, we, all we have as our option is a room of about 65 capacity. So I said, okay, let's uh, reserve it. So we opened the first session and uh, capacity is 65. We were in this room and there we found a very large number of people from campus, faculty, staff, students. So in this particular series, each session, we had faculty, staff, and students represented. Yeah. Um, so we didn't do them solely as faculty panels, uh, which brought, a, I think the idea was to bring all of the constituencies into the conversation. And um, I was very surprised to see a very long line. We couldn't accommodate everyone, even though people kept saying they'd stand at the back. I was like, no, we cannot do that. We can't exceed uh, capacity for safety reasons. And uh, then we started rethinking about putting out registrations, uh, making sure, you know, that we adhered. Uh, we still had sometimes very large numbers, and we used to tell people, "You can be on the wait list. You can show up if somebody does. If there's a seat, you can uh, come in." And that did happen um, a couple of times that year. And the same thing happened with the workshops. So we organized two workshops: one on uh, salary negotiation. Another one on leadership and both of them, especially the salary negotiation, which we offered to staff and faculty and graduate students as three separate sessions. We had to organize two additional sessions later that year because there was such a kind of so much of a response and the need, right? It was fulfilling a need for people. Yeah, that that really, I mean, I, I want to pause there and just ask the question. How do you think that you know, having rooms that were overflowing, you know, beyond the capacity you could, ma uh, you could manage as an institution. I mean, I, I love the stories of the, of the fire commissioner showing up because he was, your sessions were, you know, always ones that there were going to be lots of people waiting in the wings to, to try to get a seat. What message do you think that that sent to your administration? How did it, maybe propel or move the sort of checking the box mentality to perhaps something that folks had to come to the conclusion that, you know, there's, there's some powerful interest around this. What, what sort of happened or how did this, what were the consequences of, of this sort of response uh, for you, for your office and, and for a, maybe a recognition that, that, that this was something that needed to be a priority? Excellent question, Kathy. You know, on the one hand, it was extremely motivating just to see the response, right? And people reaching out and people beginning to ask, like, you know, can I register? Where is the registration for the next thing that's coming up? And, you know, we used to put this out only 10 days ahead. So it's extremely motivating for the office. 
Uh, I do think um, the provost saw uh, some very positive things from these sessions. Uh, he did speak at one of them. But I don't know if a single unit, which is trying to move things on a campus, can single-handedly do this. Mm -hmm. It does need, I would say, a lot of commitment from higher levels of leadership, right? And the commitment meaning not again, as, as I know you would understand very well, Kathy, it's not just about saying it. It's about the doing of things or the, or the following up on things, right, that matters. Because mm -hmm. I always believe just like it's not a single unit, you need a multi-pronged approach to address this. And that multi-pronged approach requires many people at the table. Mm -hmm. And all of the people need to buy in, all these stakeholders and all the constituencies need to buy in right? Even if I had sessions or conferences with 250 people, our last conference for assistant professors was about 285 registrants. It's really grown. I do think there's always people who are resistant, right? Who are resistant to change, resistant to issue of diversities, resistance to the issues of diversity in ways that where then they become the pullback, right? The push and the pull. So that there's, there's a group pushing and there's a group pulling mm -hmm. back. And I do think in the push and pull, if we don't have the highest levels of administration and leadership actually committed uh, to taking this forward, it becomes much slower. The pace of change becomes much slower, right? So Yes, on the one hand, I was motivated. On the other hand, I have not seen as much as I would have liked to see happen, right? On, on, on the commitments or the need for organizing things in ways that is more cohesive, that actually speaks to issues of diversity. And I think that is one part. The second part, I think, is a lot of administrators uh, across universities oftentimes find it safe to think about diversity in very binary ways, you know, uh, the black and the white, while actually there's the intersectional part makes that hard, as well as the fact that gender has been critical, right? I mean, representation of women in leadership is much needed. Yes, we need women of color. They are even less represented. But at the same time, I think somebody who doesn't think more holistically, and if we don't have that happening at the top, it's much harder to push the, the propelling that you're talking about or referring to. The second thing that I would say is just the knowledge of these issues, mm -hmm. right? In upper level administration, the knowledge, not just in terms of what I've experienced or what the student told me, there is a wide, a very, very large body of scholarship in higher education speaking to these issues, mm -hmm. also referencing interventions, saying what works, what doesn't work. Some of them are ambiguous. Some of them are much clearer in terms of findings, right? I think the lack of knowledge makes it hard, but I do think it's, it needs the propelling or the moving forward can happen at some reasonable pace only if leadership at the highest levels are willing to take that, what I call that risk, 
Right. So what do you, what do you think it takes to get them to recognize that this is a risk they need to take, or this is a priority that they need to make? You know, if you're having this sort of outpouring and this sort of demonstrative expression of need, what, what, what does it take for, for leadership in your mind? And you don't have to speak specifically about Purdue. You could say, you know, speak maybe more broadly, what does it take to, to make this a priority for that upper level of leadership that you're talking about? One, I would say to clearly understand this is not a zero sum game. That mm-hmm. is, you're not taking from some to give it to some. I think that, I think upper leadership in any institution has to understand. The second is, I think having really a diverse group of people at the top leadership, right? Mm-hmm. And that diverse group that has the knowledge, understands uh, what's happening in higher education, what's out there in scholarship, right? To have that mixed group, you know, it's, 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 it's like what I say, it should not be tokenism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It should have that wider representation right at the top to be able to have those conversations. And, and, you know, your question makes me touch on another subject. The top leadership, even if they surround themselves with half a dozen people, if those people are compliant and not willing mm-hmm. to ask the difficult questions, mm-hmm. you are never going to see anything moving forward. Right. I mean, that's leadership 101, right? I mean, don't put yes people around you, you know, put people who are going to ask hard questions, put people who've had different experiences. That's how you become a robust and strong leader is by having, having people around who aren't afraid to, to challenge, aren't afraid to educate, aren't afraid to not be compliant and, you know, not respond in a way that's similar to the other folks at the table. Yes. And somehow we talk about this as leadership 101, but in actual practice, right? Mm -hmm. The practices don't match that most times. Mm -hmm. And so when you're, when you expect compliance, you remain, if you're compliant, you remain in your position, right? The chances that if you're not compliant or you ask the hard questions, you're less likely to retain your position, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I think, most university leadership, if you look at across uh, the U.S. especially, which we are most familiar with, there are very few women, mm-hmm. right, in the top position. I mean, we can probably count on our fingers how many of them are there. You know, I constantly look up when I have to invite um, people and how many of them are women of color. And if you look at R1 institutions, that is the really elite institutions, there are even fewer of them mm-hmm. who are holding these positions. You know, I, I would say maybe even the few who've made it uh, to the top as presidents, um, those women, hopefully they are different. They don't pull the ladder up with them for one. And second, that they don't expect this compliance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Or they don't expect... Um, hopefully they won't expect this deference and compliance that actually silences people, right? I mean, you know, silence is a strategy which people use. Oh, if I speak up, it's, uh, you know, I'm going to get myself in trouble or a silence mm-hmm. as a form of protest. I know silence can be used in different ways, but I think that's part of this complexity, 
right? There is no formulaic answer of we do this and we can address diversity. It is this multi-pronged kind of approach, you know, on the one side, educating, on the other side, professional development, on a third side, action, on a fourth side, having some kind of a vision plan of where you want to take the institution, no matter what the institution is. I think that's what helps us set ourselves up for that change two years, three years down the line that we can actually see. It's interesting to just that in the academy of all places, right? When we think of education, we think of Socratic method, we think of, you know, the the foundational sort of Western way of educating as being this exchange of ideas and, and this idea that it's in that exchange that somehow the truth with a capital T emerges but how do we expect that to happen if there aren't if there isn't an exchange right i mean if you have just everybody sort of towing the line how do you how do you find that truth with a capital t how do you and interesting that in the very place that is the foundational place for this sort of discourse that there's very often what i'm hearing you say not this type of discourse yes Right, there are not that many spaces. So providing these sessions became spaces for these conversations, Mm -hmm. right? So even after the first year, people, when I said, we're going to do a new series on round tables, um, people asked, what happened to conversations about inclusion? Why, why are you stopping them kind of, right? So they were looking at these as spaces. So we've not been, maybe institutions of higher education have not been very good at creating these spaces uh, for conversation, right? But also this fear that I may not know what this is about, so I don't want to create that space, right? While I think, as you said, higher education should be the realm where we say, hey, we can have these discussions and maybe some people who know about it and some people who don't know about it. It's interesting, too, that at least my experience has been in higher education. We desire and often create those sorts of forum for I. Is that the plural for 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 I? Is that the is that the plural of forum for students much more than we do for our own leadership teams, our own faculty, our own academic teams, our own sort of um, institutional community or family. And and again, we may be falling short in providing these opportunities for students, but in my experience, at least we were attempting to provide, even in the context of coursework um, and, you know, the the conversation uh, in a seminar style course or in a course that lent itself to to discussion, there were opportunities for these kinds of conversations, probably more so even than those of the, the grown-ups who were running the institution who may not have been afforded the opportunity to have those kinds of conversations. That is true. I think it is in some sense true. We keep requiring all these core courses and these things for students, but we've not gone at the same pace with faculty or for that matter, even with staff. But the other thing that I would say, I mean, coming back to the part about the, the space for conversations and compliance, 
most institutions, you also see the sense of power dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so conversations are sometimes inhibiting in, in, the, in that dynamic or, you know, those power dynamics where people who would normally think, you would normally think know about this topic and would speak up suddenly, uh, you know, refrain from doing that. And, and I think that this notion of top down or bottom up or how do we mix this Maybe the other part of that complex dynamic or that multi-pronged approach of making it feasible, making it possible, having two-way, like, you know, top to bottom, bottom to top conversations. There are institutions which ref, you know, which kind of reference and say, oh, we are totally decentralized and our units do things. Not really, right? I mean, they couldn't be doing things if you want guiding from the top. So where's the guidance from the top for the action happening at the bottom? And how do these kind of are, I don't know what's what's a good word for this, where they merge, right? In, in mm -hmm. these complex ways, they are kind of interwoven and, you know, moving forward. I think that's lacking in institutions as well, I would say. I mean, this is something... I heard um, at some of the leadership programs I've been in, uh, I've attended from others and in other mm -hmm. institutions. There are some institutions which uh, recognize it and start kind of trying to see how do we address this to move forward. And there are some institutions that are still lagging behind um, in terms of thinking about that. Well, this time with Mangala has been so insightful and I hope you're as inspired as I am. We have more content that we can include in one podcast, so we've decided to make this into two podcasts. Stay tuned uh, and log on to the uh, following podcast to hear the final and concluding thoughts of Mangala as she shares with us uh, how it is that she has added feet to the very important initiative of achieving diversity and supporting diverse faculty, staff, and administrators at Purdue University. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to today's guest and thank you to you, our listeners. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. We hope the APL Next Ed Minipod is a helpful resource to you and your teams. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. The APL NextEd Minipod is brought to you by APL NextEd, the leading academic operations platform helping academic teams connect and collaborate in one place. To learn more about how APL NextEd is helping schools streamline academic operations, visit aplnexted.com.